Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. President Zelensky delivers an inspiring speech to Congress as the Putin-loving right gives him the cold shoulder. Plus, Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn joins me to talk about the January 6th committee's investigation as we await its final report. And later, President Biden lays out a hopeful vision for America's future as we prepare to bid farewell to a tumultuous 2022. We begin the readout tonight on the brink of a reckoning. Nearly two years after the violent siege on the U.S. Capitol, we await the release of the final report by the House January 6th Select Committee, which could come at any moment. The panel is expected to drop a whopping 800 pages that will give a comprehensive and detailed look at how Donald Trump plotted to overturn his 2020 election defeat and purposefully provoked his supporters with phony conspiracies about widespread voter fraud and how it all resulted in a violent attempt to overthrow our democracy. This report is a big deal. It's a culmination of a rigorous 18-month investigation in which the committee interviewed more than 1,200 witnesses, examined hundreds of thousands of documents, issued more than 100 subpoenas. And all of it happened despite efforts by Trump and his lackeys to delay and obstruct in every way possible. The committee has already begun releasing transcripts of some of the interviews they conducted, including several ones, several just this evening, several new ones, I should say, just this evening. Earlier today, the committee released the transcript from their interview with Cassidy Hutchinson, whose bombshell testimony in a surprise public hearing back in June uncovered shocking new details about January 6th like how Trump apparently urged the Secret Service to remove magnetometers from his rally and let people with weapons in, or how he tried to grab the steering wheel of his presidential vehicle after being told he could not join supporters at the Capitol. New transcripts show that when Hutchinson told those details to former White House lawyer Stefan Pasatino ahead of her deposition, he responded, quote, we don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about that. Keep your answer short, sweet, and simple. The less the committee thinks you know, the better. It's going to be painless, and then you're going to be taken care of, unquote. Pasantino released a statement defending himself from these allegations, but said he is taking a leave of absence from his law firm to avoid being a distraction. Hutchinson also told the committee that the night before her second interview, she got a call from an aide to former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who said, Mark wants me to let you know that he knows you're loyal and he knows you'll do the right thing tomorrow and that you're going to protect him and the boss. And that might not have been the former president's only attempt to interfere with testimony. In the executive summary released Monday, the panel said they are aware of multiple efforts by Donald Trump to contact select committee witnesses. The full report could also tell us who else was contacted. We might also get the answer to several other lingering questions. 
including about the money trail behind January 6th. A newly released transcript of an interview with a woman by the name of Julie Fancelli, or Fancelli perhaps, heiress to the grocery store chain Publix, shows that she was willing to spend $3 million to fund the rally and to give conservative groups run by Charlie Kirk more than $1 million to bus people to Washington. The other major questions surround the police preparedness and response, or lack thereof, that day. The committee said in their final meeting that they found law enforcement agencies gathered substantial evidence of potential violence at the Capitol on the 6th, but didn't really touch on why the FBI, the Capitol Police and other agencies didn't do more to increase security. All of that and more may be answered in this final report. And I'm joined now by Clint Watts, former FBI counterterrorism consultant and distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Research Institute. Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Alabama Law School. And Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter at The Guardian. Thank you all for being here. I want to go right down the middle of my panel uh, to Joyce. Uh, I want to go back to this, what appears to be interference with witnesses. The things that were said to Cassidy Hutchinson and perhaps others that we'll find out in the report. Could the lawyers who did that be in legal trouble? So right now we've heard Cassidy Hutchinson's side of the story. Those lawyers may have a side of the story that they wish to tell as well. And so often, frankly, with these things, Joy, the devil is is in the uh, details and learning where the, the variety in the evidence sometimes indicates that the story is not as strong as it could be. In other words, I don't think we should get too far over our skis on this one, even though my instinct is that Cassidy Hutchinson has been very honest. She tells a compelling story. She backs it up with details. Whether there's enough here for some form of prosecution for obstruction, I think, is unknowable at this point. Whether there's enough to refer these lawyers to bar grievance proceedings is an entirely different matter. Lawyers do not counsel their clients in this manner. And lawyers who engage in this kind of behavior, if in fact the evidence bears it out, should be sanctioned by the state bars uh, that license them. Um, let's talk about the funding aspects of this, Clint. Whenever there is a, you know, a, a potential crime, one aspect of it is who's funding the potential wrongdoing. Um, let's talk about this public heiress. She was willing to spend up to $3 million. Um, the groups under the direction of Charlie Kirk got $1.25 million of it. Alex Jones uh, got 200000 Roger Stone um, received funds to fly privately to come to Washington. It, it, it does certainly look like this was a well-funded effort if you're investigating this, how far and deeply do you go into the money aspect of it? Yeah, Joyce, I, uh, Joy, I think it really comes down to, you know, if you're looking at a conspiracy case, there are two elements that always stick out that really speak their own story. One is communications. And we've been talking about text message and relays back and forth between key individuals. The second is finances. Once you see finances, this would be critical in any sort uh, of investigation when we're looking at plots around terrorism, whether it's international or domestic, you're going to look at who is providing material support to in the act or of a violent threat or the threat of a violent threat. And that's where these two things, money and communications, they stand much, much more in solid ground in a criminal court than, say, social media posts or, or claims that you're going to see something wild. Those are very tough to try. But when you're doing the prosecution, you're looking at those linkages, it's, it's very clear what it's for. The one thing that I think is consistently absent when you look at all the January 6th testimony 
And even when you look at both the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, there hasn't been the strong enough connects, I think, to really put together who was communicating into the White House, who amongst the White House was communicating with each other. How close were we to guys in a hotel room at, in Arlington bringing weapons you know, across the river? Those are the really key components that I think we're still looking for to see if they're going to take it to the next level for a prosecution. And Hugo, do we know, based on the transcripts that have come out, um, as we've been preparing for the show, frankly, and they're to come out, whether we'll get some of those answers in the full report? Look, I think the committee is trying to distill its narrative for the final report. I think, you know, it's still going to be exhaustive and comprehensive. It's you know going to be 800 pages long. Uh, including the appendices. It's going to lay out uh, the entire multifaceted plan that Trump had to overturn the election, which culminated on January 6th. And I think, you know, some of the things that they do want to address and kind of we've heard this privately behind the scenes that there's been a real push to include uh, are things like the the less glamorous areas of this investigation, like, you know, tracking the money, tracking what warnings the FBI uh, gave to Capitol Police, if any, uh, and so I think we will see elements of this. It's, I don't think it's the case that it's been completely whitewashed from the report. Um, but I think the reason why you're seeing some of this uh, focus on Trump is because from the start, the committee has always been about trying to link everything to Trump. You know, they're always saying that Trump was the one unifying thread throughout all of these plots. And had it not been for the former president's involvement, that January 6th would not have happened. And to that very point, I want to come back to you, Clint, for a moment, because the one thing that has kind of bothered me the whole time, and I think I've said it so many times on TV, I think people know it kind of bothered me, is this idea that the FBI was getting inbound threat, uh, sort of, there was, there was a talk of threats out there on social media. Um, they knew that Donald Trump himself on December 19th said, come to the Capitol, it's going to be wild. Um, but there was also much more detailed threats that, you know, I'll put this back up, law enforcement groups, the, the police were, sh- they knew who the Proud Boys were. And I think there's a long history of the police, quite frankly, treating the Proud Boys as friendlies. Okay, I'll put it, that's the nicest way to put it. Active duty police in major U.S. cities appear to have reported, to appear on purported Oath Keepers rosters. So you knew that there were two groups that had law enforcement, either sympathy around the country or law or law enforcement or military members. Now you have an informant. And this is from the transcript um, from some of these interviews with Chris Krebs, the former director of cybersecurity and infrastructure cybersecurity, Ken Klukowski, Justice Department official, Sarah Matthews, Trump White House deputy press secretary. You had the former you had, you had a former Trump supporters and you had Mark Esper, the Pentagon chief. Um, they all of these transcripts indicate that the FBI had real warnings that there could be violence at the Capitol. How can you explain that they didn't prepare with a more robust law enforcement presence, knowing that the president was speaking in a threatening way and knowing that these groups were around and coming to Washington? Well, Joy, I, I think you probably asked me this question a couple dozen times on this show <laughs> over the last two years. So just some <laughs> things I, I, I would add to this uh, is some useful context. One, I don't know why they didn't have you know more security at the Capitol that day, but I think there is one compounding problem to all of this. It was in Washington, D.C., we oftentimes forget that the, the district just does not operate like most states. And even the way that a joint terrorism task force operates, let's say with the Capitol Police, is very different there. The next part is that it was the Pentagon, really, that had to do the response. And they were reacting to the George Floyd protest disaster scenario they had the previous summer. They were so afraid to be looking like they were going to be appearing at the Capitol in some sort of 
defensive position because Trump had been saying that might declare martial law. You know, uh, Michael, uh, General Flynn is out there saying we should declare martial law. So they're wary of that. I think the third thing is the way we do domestic terrorism is different from international terrorism. And I, I think we've talked about this for four or five straight years now, that if you cannot designate a threat, particularly as a group or organized function like malicious, uh, militia violent extremists, which they, the FBI does now talk about that quite a bit. When you can't do that, you cannot connect the pieces together. So if there are 50 people affiliated with the Proud Boys around the country talking about a violent plot or showing up and something's going to be wild, it becomes very difficult to get your hands around it to assess how serious is that threat? Is this just chatter or not? Because I think Americans would be surprised on any given day in an FBI field office, the number of threats of somebody saying that something violent is going to happen on social media is absolutely overwhelming. It's very difficult to triage. And this is really comes down to the, the two things that I have not seen answered with this commission. One, what is domestic terrorism in the United States? And is it going to be treated, you know, for the foreseeable future different than international? Is there one type of terrorism or do we have different types which we police differently and therefore we can't be proactive about policing it? Yeah. The second part is what will they want the FBI to watch on social media? You and I, we can watch it at our house. We can see that it's coming. Everyone knew January, January 6th was coming. It was not a surprise. But yet right. the FBI was questioned two different ways uh, at, at Capitol Hill. One wanted more police in the Internet. The other political party wanted less. So, you know, where are we going to stand on that issue? Yeah. And I mean, Joyce, the, the, what, what all of this comes down to, and I think what Trump's defense uh, seems like it's going to come down to, are free speech issues, right? I mean, you can get up and you can make an inflammatory speech. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing illegal about doing that. And you can say a lot of inflammatory things before you've broken the law. Foreign actors are treated a lot differently on social media when they are saying things that might be threatening. So how much of this is going to come down to how aggressive law, uh, the, the Congress wants to be about doing what Clint just said? defining de- domestic terrorism and then defining it in the context of an internet where people can say all kinds of wild stuff. Yeah, in a prospective fashion, looking ahead to the future, it's clear Congress has work to do to redefine the contours of investigative tools and prosecutive tools for dealing with domestic terrorism. Um, the current statutes give us a lot of ambit to deal with domestic terrorism after it occurs, after the right. bombing, after the cross burning, after the criminal yeah. conduct. We need better investigative tools to deal with it beforehand. But, but for the present time, you know, Trump may and, and undoubtedly will, whether it'll be successful or not, I think is the question, use this First Amendment defense in relation to the speech he gave the morning of January 6th. There's interesting case law from the Supreme Court in the context of a, a Ku Klux Klan organizer who is able to avoid responsibility uh, for incitement. And the court said it's only incitement. It's not First Amendment protected if the goal is to imminently induce violence and if you have the ability to do that. And so here we have Trump who's assembled on the ellipse with this crowd. He knows that people, some of the people are armed, and then he points them at the Capitol uh, and cheers them on from the comfort of the White House. So that might be a situation where the First Amendment doesn't apply. But to the other charges that the House committee is contemplating, That's not a situation where the First Amendment comes into play. For these charges of obstructing uh, an official proceeding, that is really squarely up the middle on these facts. The question will be whether DOJ believes there's enough evidence to prove the crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. 
the evidence that the committee has given us is very compelling for the court of public opinion. It's fascinating stuff. And we will watch this play out, obviously, uh, in the coming year. Clint Watts, Joyce Vance and Hugo Lowell, thank you all very much. Up next on the readout, Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn joins us as we await the release of the January 6th committee's final report. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The history of our time will show that the bravery of a handful of Americans doing their duty saved us from an even more grave constitutional crisis. The brave men and women of the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, and all the other law enforcement officers who fought to defend us that day saved lives and our democracy. As we continue to await the release of the January 6th committee's final report, let's bring in someone who was at the Capitol on that day and as committee vice chairwoman Liz Cheney rightfully indicated, helped save lives and our very democracy. I'm joined now by Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn. Uh, Officer Dunn, it's always great to see you. Thank you for being here. Um, And at the risk of, of course, at the risk of taking you back uh, to a very negative place, and I will apologize before doing it. I want to play this cut too for my wonderful director. These are some of the radio transmissions that we heard from law enforcement on January 6th. Here they are. They had Glock style pistols in their waistband. 8736 with the message that subject um, weapon on his right hip. Copy that, he's in the tree. Motor one, make sure PPD knows they have an elevated threat in the tree south side of Constitution Avenue. Look for the don't tread on me flag, American flag face mask, cowboy boots, weapon on the right, right side hip. I got three men walking down the street in fatigue, carrying AR-15, copy at Fort Street Independent. Um, when you were on with us on Monday on the big special, you talked about the fact that you didn't have to speculate about how differently um, a Black Lives Matter, um, you know, presence at the Capitol to protest and what we saw on January 6th would be because you you were attended both. You were there for both. You were working both um, and you saw the difference. But I wonder about that. I, you know, I, I'm always bothered by the idea that that many people came armed toward the Capitol and that. The, the Capitol Police weren't told this is what you could be facing, armed people. I, I just re-ask this again. Do you feel that the intel that was coming into the FBI was properly shared with your agency so that you could know what was coming? Well, when it comes to intel sharing and information sharing and all that stuff, that's um, that's not necessarily a rank and file issue. 
the officers on the ground, they're the ones who just go out there. They're the day-to-day officers that you see on the street around the Capitol. Um, so the people that make those decisions about the intelligence and the sharing, you know, the the, the, the cliche is they're a higher pay grade. Right. Um, that's above my pay grade. Um, but what, what, what we do need to know, it, it would be helpful to know if we're dealing with armed individuals. Um, so that, that traffic is important because we're the first line of officers that are going to be encountering them. Um, but as far as like the intel sharing, uh, I, I'm curious to see what the report says about that, because that, that, you know, that needs to trickle down. I don't know what, what the mishap was or where, where the lines of communication were broken, um, even if they were. But uh, I, I'll just wait for the report to get that information. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we are getting are some of the transcripts that are coming out. And from some of the new transcripts that have come out tonight, one of them is testimony from a a White House press aide, you know, a, a, a deputy press secretary named Sarah Matthews, who she detailed a meeting in the Oval Office on the meeting of January 5th with the president and his press team, where he asked them for ideas on how they could make, quote unquote, rhinos, Republicans in name only, as they call it, do the right thing. She testified that another Trump press aide named Chad Gilmartin did not want Trump to condemn the violence that you experienced and other officers experienced because it would, quote, let the media win and about how Trump did not want to mention peace or say anything about staying peaceful. What do you what do you make of the idea that you're, well, you're going through hell? You have White House press aides saying it would let the media win if Trump called it off. You know, what's crazy is that, you know, looking at all these we're hearing all these transcripts and everything, just how deep and how involved so many of the people, um, elected officials, uh, individuals that were inside the president's inner circle, just how deep it went. You know, they they knew that what they were doing was wrong. And it, the fact that they said, let the media win. How about let America win? How about let the police officers win? Um, the media, what the hell? Like, wh- what are we doing here? I can't believe that that, that 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 was spun out. Like, we can't admit that. You got officers who lost their lives, who lost their, their livelihood, uh, that can't come back to work, that got their, that their asses beat. We, you know, we suffered a lot of losses that day, mental health, uh, physical health. And y'all talking about letting the media win. These are people's lives that you're dealing with, you know, outside of dealing with the threat of losing democracy. You're, you're hurting officers who swore an oath to protect this country, to uphold their oaths. And y'all are out here talking about letting the media win. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Dude, when you use uh, as a Capitol Police officer had to confront and see some of these lawmakers in the hallways who were either saying that this was just a normal tourist visit, um, that, that, that it wasn't an insurrection, denying that the violence that you and your brother officers uh, and sister officers experienced, that it resulted in some of them dying, literally. Um, do they ever say to you, I'm sorry that I did that? I'm sorry that I lied about January 6th. I know that what you went through was real. There are individuals who walk the hall, not necessarily lawmakers, um, that in the capital community, it's uh, it's a lot of people that work there, but it's a small uh, community. And um, majority of the individuals who are there feel bad about what we went through. They thank us for our service. And, you know, it really means a lot when they say those things. As far as like specific individual members of Congress, um, I haven't been personally um, approached and say, you know, sorry about that. I haven't. but um. 
that that's not necessary for me. Uh, I don't do my job for recognition or to admit people doing the right thing. I it's important to defend um, people's right to say what they feel, um, even if I disagree with what it is, or even if it's a lie. However, it's it's important for other people that are in other positions to call out those lies and confront them on them. That's not my job as a police officer. My job is to protect you to be able to say what you want to say, what you're you have the freedoms to say, whether I agree with it or not. Um, but the the media needs to call out what's a lie and what's not. Um, and the, the 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 people who hold those members accountable do so at the ballot box, and that's their job to do so. That's why this whole democracy thing, it's not just a one person's job or one entity's job. Everybody has a a role to play in it. And um, fortunately, on that day, on January 6th, uh, we did our job to uphold it. And um, at the ballot box in November, this past November, a majority of Americans did their part to help hold it also. Well, uh, I will join those who thank you uh, for your service and for all that you do. Um, and, and, you know, if you want to see a, a police department that treats people respectfully and kindly when they come onto the Capitol, it is the Capitol Police. You guys do a great job. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank uh, you. for all that you do. Much appreciated. Appreciate Capitol Police Officer. Appreciate you back. All right. Well, coming up still ahead, uh, the great officer Harry Dunn and coming up still ahead, President Zelensky makes his case for continued support from America as uh, as most Republicans make it clear. They're just not that into it. We'll be right back. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. We defeated Russia in the battle for minds of the world. Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom, the freedom of people who stand for their values. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's stirring address to a joint session of Congress is monumentally historic, but not unprecedented. Most comparisons have referenced another wartime leader, Winston Churchill, calling to defend democracy in 1941. But ever since King David Kalkawa of the Kingdom of Hawaii became the first to address the U.S. Congress in 1874 on a trip that would set in motion the annexation of his kingdom, American lawmakers have welcomed foreign leaders to make speeches that frequently are not apolitical. 
1990, Nelson Mandela addressed Congress four months after being freed from 27 years in an apartheid prison. Mandela receives an ovation from a packed House. Never mind that dozens of mostly Republican House members voted against a bill calling for his release four years earlier, including Wyoming's Dick Cheney, who defended his vote calling Mandela a terrorist. In 2015, House Republicans blindsided the Obama administration by inviting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to denounce the Iran nuclear deal that the administration was negotiating. The politics of now is a Republican Party that includes some members who openly support the Putin line. Only 86 of 213 House Republicans attended President Zelensky's address last night. Some who did, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, wouldn't stand for applause lines when they weren't refusing to look up from their phones. Among those absent was Missouri Republican Josh Hawley. Here's here's why he said he skipped it. I didn't go to the speech because I I didn't want to be part of a photo op asking for more money from the United States government when they haven't given us a single piece of accounting on anything they spent. Mm -hmm, That's right. Insurrection fist pumper Josh Hawley didn't want to be part of a photo op. Yeah, okay, sport. More than any other European leader, President Zelensky represents the triumph of democracy in standing up to Vladimir Putin, just as he once stood up to our own disgraced former president in his attempt to subvert democracy. When Donald Trump asked Zelensky to just do us a favor and pretend to investigate Joe Biden for Trump's political gain, the extortion attempt that got him impeached the first time. I'm joined now by Matthew Dow, founder of Country Over Party and chief strategist for the Bush-Cheney 2004 presidential campaign. Matthew, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, and, and I, I thought a lot about it. Our morning call this morning, we were talking a lot about the Zelensky, Zelensky as a, as a historical figure, but also as a figure who is very wrapped up in all of Trump's other scandals. I just want to play for you. This is what Trump said to Zelensky at the United Nations. This is in September of 2019. This is real quick. I really hope that you and President Putin get together and can solve your problem. That would be a tremendous achievement. And I know you're trying to do that. I mean, you can see the look on his face, highly contrasted with the look on his face as he finally got the presidential meeting he wanted with Joe Biden, whose son, the right is trying to take down because they want it to be analogous to what Trump did to Hillary Clinton or was was done to Hillary Clinton in 2016. It's kind of mind blowing. But what do you make of it? Well, I know I know you probably agree with what I'm about to say, which is, is I don't think this is any surprise that the Republicans acted this way in Congress at this point in time. I I've often thought, why would they support democracy, you know, 4000 miles away when they don't support it here? So why would they support it in another country when they don't support it here? And while we see them support, you know, anti-democratic presidents of, of, of Hungary in the midst of this. And so unfortunately, it's not surprising. And unfortunately, this has become the standard operating procedure of the Republican Party today, which now seems more pro-Russian than pro-democracy in the midst of this. So leaving President Zelensky hanging out to dry, if just like they left any number of secretary of states <laughs> and election workers in America hanging out to dry in the yeah. midst of this. So it's not surprising to me. You're not going to support democracy in one country if you don't support it in your own. 
You know, what's fascinating, though, is that the Republican Party back in your day uh, was, you know, styled itself as really a national security party. It was really centered on the idea of opposing the USSR, of still fighting sort of Cold War politics, right? Even a lot of the neoconservatives, they were, you know, Scoop Jackson Democrats, right? They were, they were, they, they supported sort of liberal social values, but also really sort of a strong stance on Russia, on the Soviet, on the old Soviet Union. But now you have Fox News, which is, Republican state TV going all in, mocking Zelensky. What did Tucker call him? A nightclub strip club manager. You know, other shows there mocking him, belittling him, going after what he wore. That he didn't wear a top hat and tails when he addressed Congress. The guy's country is at war with Russia. Russia has invaded it. And it's like Fox News is sort of centering the Republican Party on remaining with Putin, even as this guy is making history as probably the most important European leader in many ways. Well, I think this is, as you've watched this history, I know you watched it well, it's it's not only that are they not the president of Lincoln anymore, and that went off the rails a long time ago, and they're long not time. the president of Teddy Roosevelt, and they're not the president of the, the party of Dwight D. Eisenhower. They're no, no longer the party of Ronald Reagan, whose probably most memorable line, if you ask most Americans, is Mr. Gorbachev, please tear down this wall as he confronted the Soviet Union in the midst of all that was going on in their anti-democratic ways in this. Again, I, I, I think it's a fundamental thing when Republicans say America first, which is what they constantly kind of try to say, what they really mean is democracy last. That's really what they mean when they say America first. It's not about our principles anymore and the narrative and common story that all of us have shared about a constitution and the will of the people and a government by for and for the people. It is about a, an ability to push through whatever you want, whatever by whatever means necessary in this. And so it, it doesn't surprise me that they're in sync now with Vladimir Putin, who espouses the basically the exact same things, which is I'm going to hold power for power's sake. And it doesn't matter who I run over or what I do or what country I invade. If I can get what I want, that's what I want. That's what the Republican yeah. Party has become. It's the least of which it's not anything close to the to the last two Bushes. But it's a party that they used to claim Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan would be shocked at what's going on. And he would be run out of the party. He'd be considered a rhino. I mean, the, he couldn't, you know, the, he couldn't enjoy. He could not. If Ronald Reagan ran today in the Republican nomination, Ronald Reagan would probably finish fifth or sixth in a Republican primary. 100%. Easily, easily. I mean, and, and I mean, the, the stuff that they're saying on Fox is getting replayed on Russian state TV. That's how much they love Tucker. That's how much they love it. And you do have this realignment really. I mean, the NRA is down with Russia. It's just this total Russia realignment. It's bizarre. But I, I, let's talk about Zelensky himself just for a moment. One of the one of the sort of theories about why the, the right hates him is that he stood up to Trump and that he's the reason Trump got impeached. And that's one of the problems with him. Do you, th number one, do you think that that might be the case? And number two, give us some historical context on where do you think he lands in terms of the history uh, of this current era? So the first point is, I, I don't know if they'd even think that far through. I don't even know if they connect any of those dots, because I don't think it's fundamentally about that. I do think it's fundamentally about they are supportive of people that exert power and are able to exert their power by any means necessary, as I said. And so I think it's much more about they like Vladimir Putin's style of leadership, unfortunately, and the way he yeah. conducts himself. 
in all that manner. And so I think it has less to do with Zelensky and much more to do with the style of leadership they like and want to emulate here and what Donald Trump wanted to emulate here. The second thing, the second, your second question on Zelensky, I think President Zelensky on a global scale is going to be go down as one of the most pro-democratic and interestingly yeah. enough, pro-American, pro-American in, in what our fundamental ideas are than any yeah. leader that I've seen in the last 50 years. He actually is acting more like an American patriot in how he's acting than most members of the Republican Party. Isn't that crazy? And Putin, you know, depending on if that story is true, might go down for falling down some stairs and pooping himself. So that could happen as well. <laughs> Matthew Dowd, I don't know. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Matthew Dowd. Always great to see you up next. Our dear friend and continual source of inspiration, Bishop William Barber, joins me next as he prepares to take the helm of a brand new theological program at Yale Divinity School. We're back after this. Ten years ago, North Carolina Republicans took control of the state legislature and the governor's mansion for the first time in more than a century. Their agenda was clear, blocking Medicaid expansion and cutting social services, but also pushing election laws that made it hard for North Carolinians, well, certain North Carolinians, to vote. Reverend William Barber, president of the state's chapter of the NAACP, rose up against such policies in protest. He led a small group of clergy, religious progressives and activists into the state legislative building in Raleigh. By the summer of 2013, he was leading more than 100,000 people at rallies across the state. The movement came to be known as Moral Mondays. Is there anybody that's not going backwards out here? Is there anybody that's going to fight out here? Are those who believe in freedom out here? Somebody said if they went home, we would go away, but we're going home right behind them. People love an origin story, and it's important to know how movements began. But perhaps the more important question is how does a movement last? Joining me now is Bishop William Barber, who has an even newer title. He is the founding director at a new Center for Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School, where he will prepare the next generation of moral leaders. Bishop Barber, it is always good to see you, my good brother. Tell me what this new institute at Yale is going to do. Well, thank you so much, Joy. And you know, we won in North Carolina. We beat voter suppression, sent home an extremist. The governor never became partisan, but we had principles, moral principles. So this center is set to institutionalize my work from the field and prepare a new generation uh, of leaders to how to do critical reflection, what we call moral analysis, moral articulation, moral action, uh, not limited to a partisan uh, kind of analysis. It's going to serve as a training ground for students, equipping them with this framework we're going to examine and teach the theory and practice of public theology and public policy and how those strategies were transformative all throughout our history. We're going to provide students with opportunities that are both practical experience in social justice and public ministry. We're going to cultivate research at the intersection of theology and public policy, critically bringing together economists and scholars and interfaith leaders and activists and lawyers and students and community members uh, on how to be in fellowship and how to build out a long-term movement. Because what we believe is that the future of our nation and the well-being of its people is not about left versus right 
and Democrat versus Republican and liberal versus conservative or moderate, but right versus wrong, and how we began to frame a narrative where we use our deepest religious values and our deepest constitutional values to examine what it means to be a just society, what it means literally to be human beings, and what it means to be a society that lifts all people. You know, we are a country where, you know, the former president didn't pay taxes for like 20 years, where, let's just be honest, most rich people don't pay taxes, you know, and, and where poverty is is aligned with people not voting. Um, and so you do have a stratified society where the rich get what they want because they donate lots of money and, and get kind of a free ride and where the poor people's campaign is what you run because it's trying to activate people who are without money uh, and without, in many ways, public policy. That's right. And we're trying to show the power. So I'll be at the center. I'll remember my work with repairs of the breach and um, the poor people's campaign, because right now in this country, George, there's not a state where the margin of victory is within three percent that poor and low wealth people do not have at least a million persons who are most of them already registered who have not voted. We have this power that's out there, but the moral articulation that can motivate and mold persons to engage is so often lacking. We're going to have to have conversations and challenges that are different than just this is a piece of public policy. For instance, when are we going to have the conversation that poverty is not benign? 750 people die a day from poverty, a quarter million a year. 330,000 people died during this COVID, not from COVID, but from the lack of health care. What, what does our deepest moral values, love, truth, and justice from the scripture, justice and, 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 and equal protection under the law and the Constitution, what does it have to say about the rightness and the wrongness of allowing this kind of reality to exist? This is why this public policy and public theology center is so critical and it's rooted in deep history. Every transformative movement, George, from from abolitionist movement, the women's suffrage movement, the labor movement, uh, the civil rights movement, the peace movement, somewhere in the midst of that, the movement for Social Security, minimum wage, there were this there were these movements, these public theologians and public policy persons engaging to shift the narrative and push the nation to, to its to its better place. Yeah. And uh, we know that you have been very much engaged in leading that effort um, in the modern era. Uh, thank you very much. Bishop William Barber, congratulations on this new uh, role. And thank you very much. And still ahead, President Biden delivers a heartfelt appeal for unity and understanding as we prepare to put 2022 in the rearview mirror. Stay right there. Late today, President Biden delivered his Christmas address, the same day the Senate voted to pass a $1.7 trillion government funding bill to avert a holiday shutdown. We're surely making progress. Things are getting better. COVID law no longer controls our lives. Our kids are back in school. People are back to work. In fact, more people are working than ever before. Americans are building again. Find that stillness in the heart of Christmas. It's at the heart of Christmas. And look, really look at each other. Not as Democrats or Republicans. Not as members of Team Red or Team Blue. But as who we really are. Fellow Americans. It is, as expected, President Biden bidening. Calling for unity at a time America needs it most. It's also a somber time for the president, who lost his first wife and infant daughter in a car accident 50 years ago when they were out shopping for a Christmas tree. 
It's partly why empathy defines Joseph Robinette Biden, a trait that won him the White House. It's a trait that reminds us of what we hold dear and what can be lost, such as loved ones taken by COVID, the seizure of bodily autonomy, even one's faith that our democracy will survive. But we're going to end tonight with some positive news. We think you all deserve some of that and highlight what the empathy president has accomplished, such as the 10 million new jobs since he took office, the infrastructure law that promises to rebuild roads and bridges and provide millions of Americans with cleaner drinking water, and the just-passed budget bill, which the president will soon sign, that will provide $600 million to Jackson, Mississippi, to help with its ongoing water crisis. The president is enjoying successes even in recent days, victories that hold special meaning in the holiday season. Last week, he signed legislation to codify federal protections for same-sex and interracial marriages in a joyous signing ceremony on the South Lawn. Just days before securing the release of WNBA star Brittany Griner from a penal colony in Russia, where she spent nearly a year behind bars. Love wins. As much as our toxic partisan politics want you to believe otherwise. So with that, let's choose joy this holiday season. My favorite double entendre. Joy is, after all, a revolutionary act. Happy holidays to you all. And that is the readout. All in with Chris Hayes starts right now. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.